All right, you know why we're here. So if you have any doubts or reservations, now is the time to say so. No one will think any less of you. Because once you enter this family, there's no getting out. This family comes before everything else. Everything. It's a thing of honor. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. There was a dream that was Rome. It shall be realized. back in studio what is up everybody welcome on into the david gascon report from fox sports radio's podcast edition from behind the glass i am your host david gascon i hope everyone had a fantastic labor day weekend because i know i did you can follow me on twitter at david j gascon and i gotta get our guests in here and onto the mic because we have a lot of things to discuss including my humbling but yet three-day weekend First things first, Ghazal Hassan is back in here being his natural, charismatic self. Ghazal, what good? I ooze charisma, or so I've been told. <laughs> or so I've been told. And we saved the best for last. She's the author of a best-selling book titled The Best Team Money Can Buy. Her work has also been showcased in the New York Times magazine, Glamour, Self, and Variety. She is from Los Angeles, California. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the one and only Molly Knight. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you very much. I was told by our technical director, John Ramos, that this is your third time in the studio. It is. We, my we, third time. Actually, I sat in that chair over there once. This is my second time in this chair. Where Gazal was at. Yes. Okay. I, I warmed it up for you. <laughs> no wonder. I feel the vibe. <laughs> I feel the vibe. Talk about feeling blue a little All bit, All of right? a sudden, I have insight into Ned Coletti. I wondered why that was. We're going to have some fun here today. Now... We gotta get you a key card because you've made so many appearances in Fox Sports Radio. But yeah. I know you've been touring pretty much around Southern California. Oh, there, there's some mail here for you that you didn't, <laughs> that you didn't pick up. Yeah. Some gourmet food being ordered for Molly as she's rolling on in. Now, before we start talking about what we need to get to, the meat and potatoes, I need to get a few things off of my chest. Okay. okay? I don't know about either of you, but I'm at that age now where in my life I'm learning and understanding the awfully tough part about recovering from things. I'm talking about like a weekend in Vegas, yeah. a bad night of eating, maybe a little bit of a heartbreak. One word, greenies. Greenies. Oh, okay. Greenies. Fair <laughs> enough. We'll use the baseball term. I, I kid, I kid. <laughs> now, both of you could be like, well, what the hell is this guy talking about? I was in San Diego over the weekend, actually down in Rancho Bernardo for a good friend of mine, his wedding. Mm-hmm. And so we stayed at the Rancho Bernardo Inn, and it was it's a fantastic resort laid out with a golf course right there. And it was a mixed wedding what i mean by mixed it was strictly a bunch of white guys and then all latinos and so my buddy who's irish married his wife who's spanish and i think she's actually full spanish but anyways so it was like people were like well, what kind of wedding do you mean by that And i'm like it's either beer or tequila that's all we drank mm-hmm. all weekend long and i'm sitting there and i'm like man it's september football season is here and i'm getting ready for a damn wedding and that was like the most annoying part. I felt really bad, but I'm Molly, you're a female, yeah. and I'm uh-huh. sure you have a lot of friends that have either gotten married or in the process of getting married. What is it with women that 
plan weddings during the sports seasons? I have six weddings this fall. Oh, good gosh. I'm oh! actually, <laughs> yeah. I'm flying to New York tomorrow okay. to, to go to a wedding. What airline? Uh, Delta. Okay. I was going to say, I hope it was Virgin. But. No, I flew. actually was in Chicago this weekend for football. Nice. For a stamp to, to watch Stanford not score a touchdown. <laughs> and uh, The every, band was there, though. The band was No, good. the band wasn't there. <laughs> oh, wow. The Stanford band has been banned from all uh, travel this year because of uh, concocting an alcoholic pour, uh, you know, po- potion uh, intended to make people vomit publicly. No kidding. That's the official... The official. So basically, it was Everclear, something involving one fifty one, or no, not that they were trying to then assault somebody. They're just trying to get everybody so drunk they vomit publicly. That's beautiful. <laughs> that is fan. I mean, that's like a frat move right there. And all of a sudden, the the band of Stanford. Well, the tree. Yeah, and the problem is that the, the dollies, the cheerleaders. I mean, they're called dollies, mm-hmm. and the tree. They're all part of the band. Okay. So that means there won't be any kind of anything <laughs> no dollies no trees no, tree. no band no band that, that's gotta, be, that, that's gotta to, be the next book molly <laughs> when they come down to usc next weekend uh or two weeks from now they will not have any of that well neither was sark so. and i won't <laughs> be i won't be leading cheers because i will be at a wedding i will oh. not be at that game i will be in another wedding in temecula so going back to that six weddings you got one in temecula uh-huh. all right so that's right where near where i was yeah. at rancher bernardo yeah and then uh, yeah i don't know people I, i've i've I have I have two two of my good my best friends who are getting married next year specifically told their fiancés who aren't as into football as they are <laughs> we we are not allowed to get married in the fall so they're both getting one is getting married the weekend before Labor Day and the other okay. one's getting married in like July or something they're okay. sacrificing perhaps being in scorching heat to avoid ruining everyone's you know yeah i mean if you work in sports it's a standing rule oh. I, my my two favorite wedding stories are my my dear friend Paul i was in his wedding Got married the weekend of the Bush push. Oh. So they have a day wedding. Mm-hmm. And so, they had, you know, and his, and his wife, lovely, lovely Jennifer, I said, would you, would you MC the, you know, because it's kind of a large family and it was a little out of control. I said, no problem. I got you. But of course, what happens is as everything's going on, everybody's racing over to the bar to watch USC Notre Dame. Yeah. And people are screaming and fl- there's nothing that can be done. And then... The one other lasting sports wedding memory that I have was when I just started graduate school at UCLA. The, my first year at UCLA was the year they played Miami in that big game down at the Orange Bowl, and a good high school buddy of mine got married that weekend. Was it the game that it was delayed because of the hurricane? Oh, yeah, right, right, yeah, the right, hurricane. Yeah. They had to reschedule it, right? That's right. Yeah. And then Deshaun Foster couldn't keep up with Edger and James, who rushed for like 1,000 yards. Yeah, yeah. well, no, McNown had a great game, but yeah, they couldn't tackle Edger and James. <laughs> and so I'm in a hotel room getting ready to get into this wedding, but I'm, I'm watching the game in the background. So I'm running into the, I ran into the bathroom to shower, and then I would run back to the TV and yell, tackle Edger and James. <laughs> then I would go shave, and oh I would run, God. tackle Edger, and then, yeah, then they didn't tackle. Yeah. James. Last so. year, my sister got married uh, the November 22nd, which was the day that USC played UCLA. Oh, my gosh. Stanford, Cal. Uh, I think Alabama, Auburn, I'm not sure. It was rivalry weekend. And, okay. and my mom, my, my parents went to USC and all their friends that were there did too. And it was, they were just on their phones the whole reception. <laughs> Luckily, USC got blown out uh, because I felt bad because they would have all been, there was no TV. They all had their smartphones. They were, they were watching it. Um, Texting, getting the updates nonstop around the <laughs> clock. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I see. I was in that Saturday was the day we got there for the rehearsal dinner, and we started drinking at about like two o'clock or three o'clock. I was stuck in traffic for like a good ninety to ninety minutes to maybe a couple hours, 
And so I was listening to UCLA, and Josh Rosen, who was oh, a yeah. true freshman, had a fantastic game. So I enjoyed that. But then all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, I got the Notre Dame game that's supposed to come on in a little bit against Texas, and that was a blowout. And some of the other games I couldn't watch. I'm just like, nothing more annoyed me than being stuck at a rehearsal dinner. What, what about State USD? Come on, man. You're yeah. alma mater. That was horrible. San Diego State has scored like one offensive touchdown. That Teddy game. Leitner. Yeah. Come on, man. That was garbage. So. I mean, if, if you throw a wedding in the fall on a Saturday, you have to understand that people are, a lot of people are not going to be present uh, right. mentally and emotionally for it. They're going to be on their phones, checking, checking, checking. And, and I'm torn because I am a fan of the Labor Day wedding because two of my closest friends both got married on Labor Day weekend, mm-hmm. had a blast. It was terrific. But now, as you guys all know, we all work right. baseball, football going on. You know, we're oh. all working. I had a volleyball match this weekend. And it's a good it's a good weekend to work because you get that Monday off. But there you go. See, at least I was happy there was no NFL yeah, season right. that started yet. Labor Day is okay. I mean, usually the wedding is on Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, or even if it's on Saturday, usually they're not um, like, huge games at that right, point. Right. Everyone's sort of like, oh, is this really is the season started yet? Is this a practice? It has a very practice game vibe, so it's not. I don't know. Yeah, you hit the nail around the head. USC is playing like Arkansas, <laughs> Southern, the Red that. Wolves, Arkansas State. I mean, if you're if if your good friend is getting married, if you're a USC fan and your really good friend is getting married, and you're on your phone watching Arkansas USC Arkansas State, you need to just turn on your friend card because come on, that's it's it's totally understandable. That actually reminds me of a of a funny story a couple years ago, or actually last year. About a year and a half ago now, my first day here at Fox was an overnight shift. And the shift started at 11 o'clock. So you go 11 p.m. till 6 a.m. And the only thing that's bad about that when you get there so late here in the studios, you have to be here. Like your call time, what they call it, is you have to be here an hour before. Well, lo and behold, it is game five of the Stanley Cup final (laughs) between the Kings and the New York Rangers. And in the first period... I had one seat, and I was at the top of Staples Center by myself, and I was enjoying the game. Kings were up one nothing at the end of the first period. Well, my sister was down at the bottom portion of the bowl, and she was standing or sitting next to some celebrities, and they had an extra seat. So they invited me down. And this guy <laughs> turned out to be like a director and a producer for some soap operas. So he's like, come down in the second period. I was like, all right, fine. So I rolled down in the second period. Rangers score a couple of goals. They take the lead, and I'm like, I need to get the hell out of this seat because I'm you know, sports geeks, I'm a little superstitious. Well, my other sister, who was married to someone in the Bus family, <laughs> Jim Bus, Jerry Bus, the whole nine yards, they're up in one of the suites. So my sister's like, I'm going to come get you. Let's go up in the suite and have a good time. Fine. Go up there in the third period. Kings tie the game up. And I'm looking at my watch, and I'm like, wait a minute. Puck dropped at 5 o'clock. It is now 8.30. This game goes to overtime. So, lo and behold, you, Kings, had to, you had to leave the game, didn't you? Kings Rangers don't score in the first overtime. My phone and my watch now say nine o'clock. And I'm like, Steph, my sister, I was like, Steph, I need to get the hell out of here pretty soon because if they win this game, the parade will be huge, at least the party outside. But the LAPD is going to start blockading right. everything off on Figueroa. 9.15 comes, no goal. 9.20 comes, no goal. 9.30 comes, and there's about eight minutes to go in that second overtime. And I'm like, I got like three more minutes here, and then I get a jam. As soon as that happens, I leave my seat, go outside, say hi to all the cops who are ready to enjoy this party, sort of. I get into my car, put on AM 1150, and Nick Nixon goes, 
Alec Martinez, Martinez. scores. Yeah. And I'm in my car and I'm like, what the F? Yeah. I missed game five, the clinching game at home in double overtime. And I made it to work on time. My my boss, Dan Byer, was like, I felt really bad for you. You're, you're a true professional, though, David. You're a true professional. By the way, why you're related? You're kind of related to the buses. I've been friends with you. How long? I've never, I've never heard that story until now. We're learning something new every day, Gazal. <laughs> so, Molly, it, it's kind of fitting that we actually have you in today because you were supposed to come in yesterday, but I know you had some some prior obligations and a little bit of scheduling, and the LA traffic didn't help either. But <laughs> it's fitting because I, I guess it's standard protocol that. You don't really announce the date on your podcast because you typically want it to be timeless, right? That's at least what I'm told. Well, today is actually the 50th anniversary of Sandy Koufax's perfect game against the Chicago Cubs. So it's it's fascinating in the sense that you're coming in here. You have authored, published a book, and I have so many questions about it. But you yourself have a fascinating story that's besides the story What's your feelings like, and how have things been perceived or received from you, but perceived from the outside about your book and, and how things have come in the last two months? What's the story? Well, um, that's a good question. It's I think it's it's probably uh, what will I say? Every everything has been amazing. I'm I I don't think it's really hit me yet that I've I've written this book. It's out in the world. It, it's been sort of like an out of body experience because I've been I've wanted to do this for so long, but for so long I was just so afraid to because I'd never written anything longer than like six thousand words before, and mm-hmm. this book is like one hundred and three thousand words. So um, I, I think that it's been amazing. The, the support I've gotten has been incredible um, from fans, from uh, players, coaches around the league. I, uh, the Houston Astros manager, who I don't even know, was. When the when the media was asking him, um, it was AJ Hinch when the media was asking him to preview the Dodgers series because they came into town a couple of weeks ago, he said, "Oh, best team money can buy, great book, go buy it." <laughs> I was just like, "What?" Free pub. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, this is someone I've never, I've never even, I didn't know that he knew that I existed. So I'm sort of uh, getting used to that, um, and I think that. Um, yeah, it's just been great. I don't know what else to say about it. It's been amazing. It's got it's got to be special for you. Obviously, you're an accomplished writer and a journalist and all that stuff, ESPN and a lot of the freelance stuff you've done, New York Magazine and all that, mm-hmm. but you're an L.A. girl who grew up a Dodger fan. You sat in the pavilion seats like so many yeah. other people, and here you go. You get to chronicle really two full seasons of the team you grew up rooting for. And it's just something, and we talked about it when we all walked into the studio. There's something about baseball. My own experience is the first baseball game I ever went to, I was eight years old, and my dad took me to Yankee Stadium, and it was old-timers day. So I see the green and I see the, the dirt, and then Mickey Mantle runs out there, and Joe DiMaggio is still alive at this point, and when Joe DiMaggio runs out there, and Yogi Berra, and that just you know, as an eight year old, I was in, I was in, and I'm sure you had you had a similar experience in terms of going to the Dodgers games when when you were growing up. Yeah, it's it's a bit scary because I don't know that I will ever, unless I I guess write about myself, which I'm not in the in the business of doing, but I guess that could happen someday. I will never know a subject better than this, so mm-hmm. it's a bit scary to think. Oh, you know, I, 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 whatever book I do next, I'm going to come to somewhat cold. Not, not. I guess it didn't have to be that way. But I grew up in that stadium. Um, I grew up in L.A. My family, we, I loved the Lakers, but Laker tickets were expensive. My sure. family couldn't afford them, so we, I got to go see. Um, I got to pick a Clipper game, one Clipper game a year to see to who I would see. So 
I wanted to see Michael Jordan. I want, one year I wanted, I was dying to see Manute Bull because I was like eight. And he was like, <laughs> you know, I heard this guy who's like yeah. eight, eight feet tall and that's all you care about when you're that age. Uh, you know, and then I would get to go see the Lakers um, when they played the Clippers at the sports arena. And the Dodgers was just growing up in the top deck there or going or sitting in the pavilion. It was totally affordable. And I think that's why as an adult, um, I don't, I'm, I don't really care about the Lakers, but it, I think when you, when you, if I'd grown up seeing them, Live, you know, living, feeling that energy, looking at those banners and all reading the programs and doing all that, keeping score, then I would, I would maybe written a Lakers book. Um, but I think, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that um, it's, it was, it was really special to do that. It, there's such a fine line in today's environment when particular, whether it's politics or sports between being a journalist and then being a fan of that party, that team, that athlete for you yourself, based on your experience writing this book, Mm -hmm. did you really have any kind of conflict at all inside? Oh, sure. I think for a long time, I, I worried about, uh, being, being neutral, being, um, you know, there's, there's almost like a, like a, being a fan is almost like a dirty word, right? Like people are a little bit ashamed of, of, think about something that you're a fan of, like a television show you're a fan of that maybe you don't want to broadcast because you feel lame which is sort of which is sort of sad because if you're if you love something it doesn't matter if it's some dumb housewife show or if it's some highbrow show on the history channel it's just what you mm-hmm. enjoy and i think uh buster Olney, who um works for espn who is a uh, mentor of mine he told me he grew up a dodger fan actually in vermont i don't i don't i'm not really clear why but he grew up a huge dodger fan and over time the industry just beat beat out beat the fandom out of him Mm-hmm. And and he told me, do not ever let go of that. Just don't do it. Because when I retire, I'm just going to pick a team and sit down and watch them every night. Because nothing was ever as fun. That's when baseball is fun. I think that um, it was hard. I, but then I realized, you know what? I think fans can be even more critical of a team than 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 anybody. So as long as you're able to keep a critical eye, um, I think it's, it's it's okay. And for me, it was funny because I realized – just in talking to these players, even players who want to win really bad, like a Clayton Kershaw uh, type, I realized like I know more about Dodger history than they do because I grew yeah. up. I grew up here. The fan and the fans always know. Yeah, I'll tell you. We'll get to the book. So I'll tell you. So when I start reading the book, I read your prologue, <laughs> and I kind of roll my. I'm like, oh, here we go. She's going <laughs> to talk about her meeting Clayton Kershaw, blah, blah blah. Yeah, yeah. And then I got into the meat of the book, and. I mean, I knew you were a Dodger fan before I uh-huh. started reading it, uh-huh. but I was just impressed. I mean, the stories and the writing obviously is really good, but how thorough you were to kind of scrub that. I mean, it was weird because I knew you were writing. I knew you were a Dodger fan when I read the book, uh-huh. but clearly you didn't write the book as a Dodger fan. Right. You, you wrote it as somebody who was just there day to day to day. And I didn't feel that you your fandom colored the book at all. That, I don't, and I'm going to ask you a few questions. Like if we get sure. deeper into this, I'm going to ask you a few questions about certain things, but that to me is a skill, and I—I I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but I'm—I feel I'm fairly decent at kind of compartmentalizing the fandom. Like I can sit down and enjoy a game as a fan, but then you can take a step back and kind of look at it with a more critical eye in terms of the greater context of whether it be just baseball itself or just kind of a journalist overall. I don't know how you feel about that, Dave. Yeah, this, I think for me, it kind of like everything for me kind of clicked. I mean, this is like back when I was like starting college, but. Broncos had finally won their Super Bowl, and I was a huge John Elway fan growing up. And I was like, you know what? This is it. And the one last thing I wanted to see, like, as a fan, I mean, I've seen the Lakers titles, Dodgers in 1988, but I wanted to see, obviously, the Kings to win the Stanley Cup. So once those two things happen, not that I'd say that I'm 
less of a fan than I was before. Part of it's growing up, obviously, but I curve that fandom where it turned into like a fanatic because you get guys that are 18, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 years old, and it's just that is their life. It consumes them, and even after a game, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, after a team loses, they kind of like carry that over into their personal life and their work life, and it's it's like, man, you are holding on way too tight nowadays. But enough about yeah. the SEC, David. <laughs> you are right. No, it's it's a weird. I have to ask myself this all the time because I don't know. I think, in a way, I've sort of fallen in love with everyone who I've ever written about. I, mm. I say that like as a you know platonic, <laughs> just or just just really. It's uh, it's I've, hard. It's hard not to. It's yeah, hard not to root because we're not supposed to root. Sure. But when you get to know people and get yeah. to know their story, it's hard not. And to. most people are good. They just are. And most people have overcome something and, and and they have their own vulnerabilities and you, and you see the things that they're worried about the things that have that have injured them and then when you see them triumph you can't if you know them personally you can't help but feel feel joy for that and i think i don't know if if i am rooting rooting for the dodgers to win as much as say I'm rooting for Clayton Kershaw to go out there and just shove it down everyone's throats. The whole like, oh, he's not a big, big you know, big playoff game person or whatever it is. I, I I got to know him well. We're not, you know, we don't go out and and have have drinks together, but we're. I got to know him fairly well, and I just think, wow, this is a phenomenal person who is kind and good and amazing and tough. And I I hate the idea that there are some idiots on the internet out there who just say oh he's he's he sucks blah 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 like that just personally gets me riled up there were some easy things i'm sure about your book some harder things that you had to attack with regards to the title the best team money can buy how quick did you come up with that title or was that something that came at the tail end of it well it's interesting when i when i sold the book that was the working title and i just i i kind of, i told myself oh it's just a placeholder until i come up with something better mm-hmm but the problem is with baseball, everything is so cliche and done. You can't do anything <laughs> right. with the word ball in it, anything with the word field, <laughs> anything. There's, I mean, home run. I mean, everything is just so cliche that, that there was nothing that really could be. It, it wound up being the best thing. The hardest part was the subtitle because I, a lot of my friends who were uh, who are Giants fans, I, I went to a college up in the Bay Area, so I have a lot of friends who are Giants fans, and they were, they were like, well, what do you mean the best team money can buy? Clearly the Giants are the best team. And I was like, no, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek. It's sort of, it, it kind of, you know, questions the idea, can you buy a championship? Is this, is, is we have all the money in the world, this is what we're left with. And so, and everything just seemed kind of weird. I didn't want it to be too negative, but then, I mean, the, the subtitle, but then I still wanted to imply up and down, but again, couldn't use roller coaster. This is all very boring, but <laughs> the subtitle was awful to come up with but it's like it was just everything i come up with would get rejected and but for me it's it's fascinating because in a sense although you are a journalist in some ways you can think about this and it's almost like you are an artist sculpting something (laughs) and peeling things away and so when you're removing these things and getting a better understanding of the franchise Mm -hmm. of the players like you mentioned these are some good guys that are out there maybe even their wives or girlfriends it's it's fascinating because once you start digging, then all of a sudden you just start digging and digging and digging, and you find some fascinating things over the course of whether it's a year, year, year and a half, or a couple years, and then it doesn't really stop. So in that sense, were there any major hurdles that you had to overcome when you were writing this book at all, or did it feel like everything kind of just flowed? Well, I think I had to decide what what to leave out and what to put in and what to leave out oh, okay. because I wasn't 
really interested in writing a, a tabloid book, mm. um, writing about anything that was just taking a cheap shot at someone. I, of course, I saw a lot of things. You know, I was on the road with this team. I saw a lot of things that, that would potentially hurt relationships, hurt, hurt marriages, <laughs> hurt, you know, hurt yeah. whatever it would be. Um, and, and I just, you know what, that's not what this book is. This is not like a tell-all, juicy kind of thing. Sure, there's stuff in there that people didn't know, but I wasn't going to speculate about the guys that everyone, that all of their teammates thought were using steroids. I wasn't going to write about affairs that people, that, that people were having. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to write about those kinds of things. Um, that were just sort of not germane to the plot. The only, and it's funny you bring that up, because I wasn't going to ask this, but I will now, because you do a little bit on McGuire in the book, mm-hmm. and you completely leave his, I mean, not only sure. the steroids thing, but the playing career in general. I mean, you mentioned, right. obviously, he played in the big leagues, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. And that was, a, that was a choice that you basically made that, hey, yeah. this, is, this is not about the 1990s. This is about the 2013 Dodgers, so I'm going to do it in the context of the 2013 Dodgers. Yeah, and I think for me, Mark McGuire, was, that was an interesting, uh, it's an interesting observation because I don't know what it was. He was a player when I was a kid, and, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I had, I had a totally different impression of him than, than how he actually was. I was a bit intimidated. To, he's a bash brother. He's a big, I mean, I think maybe yeah. because I was really small and he was just big dude. <laughs> and he, he's kind of he like a, he bulging. Good, he's yeah. a good guy. So he's kind of like bulging veins, you know, like red faced and like just a little bit scary. I thought he was just going to be kind of like grumpy. Yeah. And so I didn't talk to him at all during the 2013 season. I think I had to, not that I was, he ever was acted like a jerk or anything. I just was like, well, I don't know if that guy's going to be helpful. And then I started talking to him about Puig in 2014 and he was amazing. He yeah. was so thoughtful He's, he just clearly has a has a good sense of what's going on, and I thought, wow, I had a totally different. Just as somebody who didn't know him, I had a totally different idea about this guy. And actually, just getting to talk to him was like, well, this is totally interesting. So you're right, I didn't I didn't mention his playing career. I, I didn't know him then, and I and yeah. I thought, okay, let's just talk about him as a coach. I think he's a great hitting coach. I, I bring it up because I had I had it years ago when I'm I'm. But we bumped into McGuire. I was with a couple of buddies, and we bumped into him. And of course, the one guy who's not into sports is the one that goes up to him, and he's like, he, he assumed he was a football player. <laughs> and I, I was always impressed by this. Like he did, he wasn't a jerk about. it. He said, "Well, you know." And then, of course, my friend, when we told my friend, "You idiot, that's Mark McGuire," <laughs> he said, "Oh, I'm sorry, Mark." But you know what he said? He said, "You know what? My brother played football. I'll give you a pat. My brother played." And he was just totally yeah. cool about it. Yeah. But obviously, this is before all the you know the PED stuff broke. But I, you know, and that's kind of. The question for, I, for you wasn't, oh, Molly, why didn't you include the steroid stuff? I was yeah. just curious if that was just a personal choice of yours or that was something maybe that you just you came in and said, I'm not going to not going to touch that. And yeah, it, the steroid thing is just it's just so oh, I mean, I don't know what to say about any of it because yeah. I I'm I'm a, I'm a pretty anxious person. So I don't know that I would have if I had been in their shoes, a baseball player, I, I don't know that I would have been one to be have the nerve to do steroids because I'd be too paranoid I would get caught or whatever. Needles. But I don't have a lot of judgment for it because it wasn't yeah. something that was tested for. And clearly baseball was complicit in all of it. The ratings yeah. were, they were breaking records. No, it, and yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing with some guys who, there was some, is it important to the story? Well, maybe. I mean, some some players telling me, oh yeah, so-and-so is definitely juicing or mm-hmm. well, we never see this guy lifting weights or whatever it is. 
do we really want to speculate about about potential drug use? It just gets a slippery slope, right? Well, but and, and that's the whole thing is the new kind of the newer generation. If you look, if you, you, when you go back and do your research, there's all the hand wringing about the PEDs. But the deeper into it you go, there's so many elements to oh, it, right. and especially once you talk to players. And Dave and I have talked to players who told us, you know, when you're in the minors in the '90s, they told you to do steroids. Oh yeah, yeah. So there were like people, like team employees, injecting people and yeah. getting this shipment in. And now, for me, for instance, I don't know. Have I, had either of you guys uh, ever ever ex- experimented? Not experimented. Um, taken Adderall before? I have. Okay, so that's the, that's the thing now that everyone's on. <laughs> yeah. And if you've taken Adderall, I actually um, I, I've never taken Adderall until. I was um, I was uh, in Tokyo this year, and I was trying to get over a jet lag. I had a, we were doing a long weekend in Tokyo, and my friend who had Adderall, maybe I'm admitting something I shouldn't be, but he gave me one of his Adderall, and it, and it was like I was a superhuman. It was yeah. it was amazing. I felt like I could fly, and now I'm like, wait a second, yeah. this is totally a performance enhancing <laughs> drug, and now I'm mad that I don't have a prescription of this. How did I write a book without this? Yeah, seriously, I, I have some friends that are just like that. They'll go to Vegas, and all of a sudden they're like, we're tired. I'm drinking my five hour energy or a Red Bull. No, they're popping Adderall. Right. It's like, wait a minute. I, yeah. I have friends that went to law school. Oh, of course. And that is what they chewed on. Oh, yeah. It was fascinating. Now I'm so mad. Like, I, I went through college and then having this writing career, I feel like I've been at a total disadvantage. Now, is Adderall going to make me hit a home run? Probably not. But is it going to make me be awake after a long flight? They do all these overnight flights and they yeah. play like 15 games in a row. Yeah, acuity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you're thinking about it and... Going going back to McGuire, especially in that home run chase in 1998, it was McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and then for the most part, for probably two-thirds or three-quarters of the season, was Ken Griffey Jr. And I remember that specifically because they would interview McGuire, and in his locker, he would have Androstein. Right. And that was by EAS. And I graduated back in 98 from high school, and I had torn my road to the cup playing football and I went to a small school, so I wasn't wasn't recruited at all unless until I went to a junior college. But that was exactly one of the things that I took, and I remember taking. It was creatine and androstein, and it was like that's what you needed to do. And kind of going back to what you were saying as far as some of these guys back in the day and how this is like streamed off in different routes, Molly. It, it's it's wild because. You, you know what goes on to a certain degree. In other instances, you don't. And, you know, Andy Pettit a few years ago admitting to using some HGH about, you know, the recovery and whatnot. But for me, it was like these are just things that you kind of take to keep up with the level of competition. That's kind of the norm. I don't think – and to me, it's crazy that baseball doesn't allow – so if a, if a pitcher, you know, Matt, Matt Harvey or Jose Fernandez or anybody gets, gets, has a serious injury. Why can't they use HGH to to help to speed rehab. their recovery? What mm-hmm. in the world? Don't you want your players healthy and back? Like, why? Maybe they can work something out to where you can't use it. All right, you can get a prescription for it, but you can't. You you have to stop using it. Like, whatever it is, up to four months before you go back on the field. Sure. But for the first six months of your rehab, you're using it. Like, why? What what are they trying to prove I mean, by not doing that? It's like the Tour de France or even the USOC. They won't allow you to get like the blood transfusions with the platelet, the dope, the doping, right. the doping. Yeah, so you yeah. get guys like Kobe Bryant though, and other guys that blood have spinning, knee operations. Spinning. They're spinning the blood, right? Yeah. So they'll go to Germany sure. and they have those procedures done. But God forbid if it's like the Tour de France well, or the Olympics, we, no way it's happening. And, and you know we don't want this to kind of veer off into a story thing. But here's what kills me is that you know if you have friends who competed in track and field and at a high level, you have all these. I don't want to call them journalists, but, you know, the pundits and the commentators. Oh, baseball is tainted. <laughs> then they'll write, they'll write 6,000 words on the Olympics 
failing to realize the Olympics have been dirty for a hundred years, but no, <laughs> nobody, can, it's not the same. It's it, there's not the same narrative being advanced about track and field in the Olympics as there are in terms of baseball. Yeah. But to bring this back to the best team money can buy, Molly, <laughs> let me ask you. The best steroids money can buy. It would be <laughs> yeah. Adder- Adderall. That, that's, Adderall. That's the sequel. Yeah. Um, but so, little, little disclosure, my favorite player growing up was Don Mattingly. I grew oh. up in North Jersey and he of was course, a Yankee. Of course. But of course, and I was jealous because I was a righty and my brother was a lefty. My brother was a better hitter than me and he played first base. He, he could always claim Mattingly more than I could. <laughs> so, obviously, when he, I was never a Dodger fan, but when he became the manager, obviously, I kind of had to watch the Dodgers yeah. a little more closely. And, you know, there's the criticism often of Mattingly and his choices. Sure, so sure. the question I need to ask you is, who saved the Dodgers in 2013? Was it Yasiel Puig or was it Donnie Baseball in that clubhouse keeping everything on an even keel in the scales? I mean, I would say both. And also Hanley Ramirez. He didn't get enough credit. I yeah. think some people who realized it, but he was... He that was last even, month. I mean, yeah. he was even better than Puig that year. He was... He was if he had played the whole... He only played like 86 games or something. If he had played the whole year, he could have been the MVP that year. He was unbelievable and that's when their season ended when he got injured think about Don Mattingly that annoys me or, or what the way that for fans perceive him is it's almost as if fans people will not believe that a manager could get better like you you could see that a player gets better. look at Justin Turner or any of these guys right you could you people will buy that a player could get better or, or Jake Arrieta right mm-hmm. all of a sudden he's amazing but there's no I guess once you decide a manager's a moron you're never gonna 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 you're always going to view every decision he makes through that lens, and so even the great mis- the great decisions he makes are not he doesn't get credit for those. He only gets beat up for the bad things. And he, Man- Mattingly was not a good manager in 2013. He was go- great in the clubhouse, but it, strategically he was weak because he had a weak bench coach because they'd never neither neither he or Trey Hillman had ever coached or played in the National League before. Really, well, I guess Mattingly had uh, been been uh, been an assistant. Uh, for the Dodgers, but neither one of them had ever managed in the National League before. You can't have that. You can't have you, your bench coach has to be uh, strong. Your consigliere there, and people don't realize that the bench coach is the one doing a lot of the decisions. He's the one that keeps track of. I mean, Don Zimmer to Tory is a right. great example. He's the one who keeps track of who's still in the what pitchers. What 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 pitcher is thrown? You know, how many warm up pitches he's thrown this week, or how many versus the game? Who's on the bench? Like the the late game matchups, because the manager's got you know got a lot of things going on, trying to mm-hmm. deal with egos and media and the front office and and everything. Uh, and he's gotten better. He doesn't do very rarely does he does he cost them a game anymore. Sure, it happens, but it happens with every manager. But in 2013, I mean, he blew like two playoff games, which which doesn't should never happen. Obviously, last year he didn't blow any. That was just the bullpen that blew it. I mean, he couldn't. There's nothing he could do. Pull the pull the starter. The bullpen gets lit up. Leave the starter in. Starter gets lit up. There's nothing he could do. Which is weird because you're talking about 2013, right. 2014. We're in 2015 now, and the same problems that have played them in the last couple years are their pen, and they have a horrible problem in their pen right now. Yeah, they're good. They're, they've been a little better for the last couple of weeks, right. actually, which bodes well. It's interesting. I feel like the Dodgers have been sleepwalking this whole season, uh, just sort of playing, not just in, in well, their record's been great. They've been in first place. Sure. But they've just been making dumb mistakes, just been re- playing really uninspired ball and out-talenting everyone, mm-hmm. and now they're playing amazing. They're, and and Maddenly's pushing all the right buttons. I mean, he outmanaged uh, Madden, Bochi, 
and Sosha. <laughs> in line, those are, those guys are considered you know the three top the three brightest managers or three of the brightest managers in the game. So you say sleepwalking. I felt for the better half of this season they were almost fool's gold because their winning percentage against teams that were above five hundred was in like the thirty percent range. Yeah, except that the problem with that is look the the Angels are about to fall below 500. <laughs> yeah. The Nationals are about to fall below 500. Right. I, it's like you can't... But, but that's how it's done. Yeah, I mean, course. you go back to... you know, go, the, I always, That always peeves me, both in football and in baseball, because in baseball, now it's 15 teams in each league, right? Sure. So right. you're going to have six really good teams, mm-hmm. and everybody else is going to be either around 500 or below. Right. I mean, that's how the great Yankee and Dodger teams of the 40s and 50s mm-hmm. did it, because they would just beat up on the, the, the sure. St. Louis Browns and the Kansas City A's of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and play kind of even against everybody else. That's just how it's yeah. always been done. And yeah. you know, the fan, too, always forgets. It's like anything else. It's like the real estate market. It's like the, the stock market. There's always a correction sure. over the time of a trend. And just like in baseball, 162, you're going to have those ebbs and flows of a season. Yeah, sure, the Dodgers pen had a rough, rough rut between June, July, and even the early part of August. I know they blew a couple other games as well. But still, it's, it's one of those things where – Granky and Kershaw. Kershaw is trying to backdoor his way into another Cy Young. Yeah, he probably will. Those guys have been fantastic over the course of this season, especially because Clayton had such a, a lull to start off the year, but part of that was just because he was on the DL to open up the campaign. But the other guys have been fantastic. One of the things that we talked about when I invited you in, Molly, was the sensitivity with a lot of people when it comes around that guy, that Cuban, <laughs> Yasiel Puig. Yeah. What is the fascination that you see or perceive from people? Why do they get so defensive about him? Because it almost feels like people, when they try to knock down Kobe Bryant a little bit, when they compare him to Michael Jordan. Yeah, it's a weird thing. I think for me, when I when I went into this book to report it, I I'm very sensitive to the idea that baseball is a is an old white man sport. Uh, I've I've felt very my first few years of reporting in, in this field i felt very uh, uncomfortable sort of like looked down on not look just just an outsider i mm-hmm. felt like i mm-hmm. didn't fit i felt like people judged me or or looked at me like what does she what does she know ha ha like it's a very baseball is like a comforting game because it's been the same forever and right. it's a game people hold on to because the world is changing and they don't want people don't want to it's scary how fast the world is changing and baseball is like that one constant. <laughs> so now you've got these these players who come in who don't have a sense of the history or or even if they do they're they're not playing the the game the way it's been played and people are really threatened by it and really get really upset about it. It's like a threat to their to just to their stability or something. That brings up a great point that I wanted to make about the book and I that's why I was I was I, I really enjoyed about it was I never quite knew Aside from that prologue, there's not much of Molly. I mean, there's Molly Knight is in the book because you have a passion for the Dodgers. But I, I when you presented that, I was telling Dave a couple of the examples. So there's the part about I think it was the 2013 NLCS against St. Louis about the perception of you know here's Puig, you know he's the upstart, the Cubano who comes in, he's kind of turning the world upside down in L.A. And then here are the Cardinals who quote unquote play the game the right way. Right now. To a guy like me, playing the game the right way is you play it hard and you play to win. Right. Which I, I do think uh, Puig does, albeit in, in, a, in a different manner. So yeah. let me let me ask you, a, a first first question is, did you have a good experience dealing with Yasiel Puig the couple of years that you covered the, the, yeah, for I mean, the book? I mean, I think I had the same experience that everyone else did. I think, but what was so hard uh, for me was coming in and seeing seeing someone like Puig 
Uh, I mean, supremely talented. Yeah, and 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 so of, of course, race impacted the way he was covered, and I and I would get really offended by it. And it wasn't just the white writers; it was it was it was the Hispanic and Latino writers who expected that that he would roll out the red carpet for mm-hmm. them and give him all the time in the world, but he wasn't interested in talking to any media. And so then they would, you know, oh, he doesn't respect his elders; he doesn't know the history of of. Cuban American and Cuban baseballs, and you know he's he's not genuflecting to you know Luis Gonzalez. It was this whole thing where I thought this is just this is wrong the way that he's being he's being trashed for no reason. But then at the same time, realizing wait a minute, wait a second, wait a second, he could it could be wrong the way that he's being covered by some of these people, but. I can't write a book where he's he is the victim and he's and he's this great person who's being persecuted or whatever great teammate when his teammates are talking about what a distraction he's being. Well, I thought like those are two separate mm-hmm. issues. And that was a great thing I thought you bought out in the book was that okay there was some unfair treatment of him a lot of it and a lot of it I think was culture clash is the wrong word but it's like fish yeah. out of water right, right he didn't course. really understand the culture or whatnot but the other part you said you you, you bought out was that. He wasn't as much of a babe in the woods as he played it off oh, sometimes, like throwing out of the English course. sentence yeah. at the end. He's... And the, the the one part that I, that I that I well the Uribe stuff we we'll, we'll get oh, yeah. into, but you made a great point when Schumacher and Punto left. Uh-huh. They were kind of two of the guys that would toe the line with Puig. However, they did. Right. I don't know if they did through interpreter or if they spoke a little Spanish. But then when they left, and nobody and you 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 revealed yeah. that he kind of respected that they told yeah. him. It was funny to me because he, I knew those guys, and and they would, they'd been around. They 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 both played for the Cardinals, for instance, and they and the Twins and just different teams, and they they just were like, no, this is not how we do things, because he was a rookie, and part of it was wasn't his fault. He was given relaxed rules because he saved a lot of jobs and he brought fans, and so it was like it's like the Hollywood child star thing, where right. <laughs> where you don't you're not brought up, you you don't get the boundaries and the rules because you're you're the one that's the breadwinner. And and they were like, no, no, this is not how we do business. We sh- if there's a team meeting, we show up on time. We don't. We're not the last person in the locker room every day. You know, we don't. We don't do this. And he'd get upset and challenge them. But then, secretly, he did. He did really respect them for it because they were. They didn't care. They didn't care that he was. I mean, they cared about him, but they didn't. They weren't like, oh, he's a superstar kid. They're like, no, no, Brooke, this is how we do things. And then, yeah, like people close to him told me. That um, that was a huge loss uh, for him personally, even though they weren't all friends. And I told those guys that, and they were like, "Really? Wow!" Like they had no—I mean, they didn't know. But I mean, it makes sense to me. Um, what, what was the role? Now, did Uribe have a direct role with? Oh. We did th- those guys, so that was his godfather, kind of. When yeah. Uribe was with the Dodgers, yeah. Uribe, uh, he was that. That loss this year was just so huge. And I, it's weird. I almost think that they're only now refinding their identity uh, in a way because because of that. I understand why they did it, and I, I think fans don't understand too that, that Uribe wanted a chance to go somewhere to play every day. He wasn't—he's not the type to to demand a trade or whatever. And Justin Turner has been has been phenomenal. Yeah. He's been their best, the most consistent hitter all year. Dude's, dude's been amazing. Andre so, Ethier and those two guys. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, he's he's but he's he's had like a 950 OPS as a Dodger. So it's not as if they just cut Uribe to give some scrub <laughs> a chance. Right. It's like, where are you going to play him? And I get it. Um, and so they gave him a chance because of the respect for him to, to go and play somewhere every day. But and, and now he's playing the he same was, role with the Mets as he yeah, did with the Dodgers. He's the he's the, he was the emotional leader of that club. Um, he's the only player I've ever seen who has uh, who who maybe make goes out of his way to befriend everyone in a clubhouse, regardless of what language they speak, what position they play. If they're a superstar, if they're a rookie, I mean, he's phenomenal. He'll he'll be. 
he will have a job in baseball for as long as as he wants to. I think he wants to probably play for another twenty years. But <laughs> but no, he's he's the best. Um, when he hit that home run to uh, to win the game, I almost I almost started crying because I knew I didn't. But I mean, just because I knew uh, what he'd gone through, just being re- being really bad and being booed, mm-hmm. and I knew how he how he had befriended Hunjin Ryu, the Dodgers starting pitcher. Who great, came that's from, a great story in the book. Yeah. Who. And Rue, I talked to him after the season, and you know he's like he's okay. This he's a dude. He's fine. He's 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 personable. He doesn't speak the language though, and he's right. so far from home. Yeah. And you think about you don't think about how homesickness could affect or or just imagine going to play somewhere and not having any clue of how to communicate with anyone and how frustrating that would be. Even if you're not like a person who suffers from like depression or anxiety, like yeah. that would be terrible. And you really made him comfortable, and he had an amazing year, and he was a huge part of why they got as far as he did. Now would they? Would Rue have been as good without Uribe? I don't know. Maybe, but maybe not. And you think about just little things that people have no idea about. And just sort of like, you know, it's like when you see the kid on the bus who doesn't have a friend. And then you did this, the scene where, like Forrest Gump, where it's like, you can sit here. Like, that's Uribe. Uribe is like, oh, come sit with me. And you're just like, oh, that's just really nice. <laughs> Speaking of things that people may or may not know, with all the personalities and some of the egos that are in the locker room, today is September 9th, 2015. Fifty years ago to the day, though, Sandy Koufax faced 27 Cubs and punched 14 of them out. That's one of the guys that, unfortunately, I never got a chance to see play. I'll watch him on YouTube. I'll listen to Vince Scully's YouTube calls of the perfect game. And then I'll chat with my dad. And when we talk about some of the best players of all time and then mention the best pitchers, you talk to anybody in Major League Baseball, Sandy Koufax is that guy, even though he had a short playing career being around Dodger personnel, what is that like when the name Koufax comes up? It's he's a god, uh, and it's so funny because he's just not interested in any of that. <laughs> he's a private man. He's mm-hmm. understated. He's uncomfortable with all of the. You know, he, he doesn't want to be the guy who's out shaking hands and having parades. He's just he's the greatest, and he still looks like he could go out and throw two hundred <laughs> innings this year. I tell you, he's in better shape than most of the writers who cover that team. <laughs> it's dangerous, um, and I think it's it's actually he and Kershaw um, they line up like their personalities are, are a bit similar. Kershaw's embarrassed about being you know having the biggest contract, and he doesn't want that stuff. And he, I mean, he want of course he believes he's he's earned that money, and he sure. has, uh, and and he wants to give most of it away, but but he's not into the whole cult of himself you know he's, he's not really i don't know he's, he's not that guy so to, to for them to have the relationship that they have and and um it's been phenomenal but watching watching kershaw too it's a weird thing to be watching someone who should probably be on a wall in like a black and white photo like like kershaw it's weird to be watching history as it happens somebody tw- sam miller uh from um baseball perspectives tweeted last night that Clayton kershaw is an er a sub two era over his last 1000 innings it's like what it's disgusting you can't. You're just like you think about it, and and we always like think about oh the Babe Ruths and or the Abraham Lincolns or yeah. you know whatever. I'm not going to compare Kershaw to Lincoln because that's a bit much. But you know you think about the past and these these great figures in history. So it's weird to, to be feeling like you're watching history unfold. See, I feel like that right now when I watch Kershaw and when I watch Mike oh, Trout yeah. play. Those are the two guys yeah. that I know Bonds had some fantastic seasons up in the Bay Area, but those are the two guys that. I know Kershaw's had some problems in the postseason, but when you watch those guys play, I mean, you know exactly what you're going to get, and they bring it day in and day out. And that's one of the things that people want to compare LeBron to Jordan or Kobe to Jordan so much, but I can understand now why people compare Kershaw to Koufax. Although Koufax had that blistering fastball and that Uncle Charlie, Kershaw is, 
I mean, he's right there with him, although he didn't face some of the batters that and obviously Koufax faced back in the day. I mean, I was a kid in New Jersey when Dwight Gooden burst onto the scene as a 19-year-old. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And now, you know, Kershaw was in the big leagues by the time he was 20. Right. Trout was in the big leagues at 19. I think uh, Bryce Harper's in the big leagues at 19. Carlos Correa, 20 years old. And it's funny because Dave and I cover college baseball, so we see, you know, college baseball's played at a very high level. I remember Garrett Cole when he was at UCLA. But, man, these guys now who are all 20, 21, and they're not only in the big league. You know, it used to be right. scouts would say, hey, if a kid's in big, the big leagues by the time he's 21, it doesn't become a star till he's 24. That's fine with us because then it gives them that time to develop. These guys are now in the big leagues at 20 years old. Yeah. And, I mean, Chris, uh, Kurt, Car- Clayton Kershaw was a star by the time he was 21 years oh, old. Oh, yeah. Carlos Correa for the Astros. He's, 20, he's yeah. what, 20. 21. Uh, yeah. He's unbelievable. He might be the best, best player in the American League next year. Well, besides yeah. Trout. Like next I mean, year, it'll be a discussion. I mean, though. That, be, that's what's amazing. It'll yeah, be a discussion Corey, between you and Trout. Yeah, Corey Seager, Seager. I mean, look at him. I mean, he he's been ready to be on that team forever, and he he might start shortstop in the postseason, like Derek Jeter. I mean, you think about these things, and it's crazy. It's 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 mind blowing. In your in your opinion, do you feel that? And this goes back to the back into the to the glory days of baseball. But do you feel that Kershaw needs to have a type of Jack Morris performance? Twins and Braves, 1991 World Series Game 7. I remember that like it was yesterday. It was one of my my favorite pitching performances of all time. Or Pettit Game 6 in 96. Right. There you go. Right, I mean, right. Morris goes 10 innings and gets that W for the Twins. I mean, that was Game 6 where Kirby Puckett hit the walk-off home run. But do you feel that Kershaw needs to have that kind of performance to kind of solidify his career, much like a Peyton Manning win the Super Bowl? Yeah, sure. And I think I think he will. It's just only a matter of time. I mean, I covered the – for ESPN, I covered the, the Giants a lot when they were in, in the playoffs in the NLCS in 2012. Bumgarner was awful. Mm-hmm. I was at mm-hmm. both games he pitched – the first one was like three. He went three innings and gave up seven runs, and then he went four and or something. Like three innings, four innings, gave up four runs. Three innings, gave up seven runs. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was bad. His his arm was just dead, and he wanted to. He remember he was wearing like a beige shirt, and he wanted to like blend into the wall behind him. <laughs> and nobody talks. Nobody talks about that anymore. I think the problem with like Kershaw and Mike Trout is you're absolutely right. They're so good mm-hmm. that you know Trout. Didn't have a great playoff series right. last year. Everyone's just going to obsess over that, you know. Oh my God, Mike Trout made an out. He's got, he, you know, <laughs> where's the will to win? He chokes on the big stage. You know, it's like you just give him, a, give him a second. Uh, Kershaw, uh, he he was he's been phenomenal. He, he was amazing against uh, in 2013. His first three starts, and he, he barely gave up any earned runs against the Cardinals, the Braves. He's had two bad playoff performances. And one or games, and one that was pretty good last year on three days rest when he when he was six scoreless and they gave up that home run to Matt Adams in the I mean, seventh. And so much of it, like you said, Mal, is a, like talking about the the PED stuff. It's about yeah. context because Mickey Mantle had World Series where he hit one fifty. Right. Derek Jeter had World Series where he hit one fifty. Right. We mentioned you know Pettit in Game Six in ninety six. In Game Six in two thousand one, it was a fifteen. You know he didn't get out of the third inning. I don't think right. so. And then you know you look at these people now; they're considered great postseason performers, but. There's a whole lot of contact in Reggie Jackson. Mr. October had some struggles in the in the ALCS, sure. both with the A's and with the Yankees. We've had a kind of a, a roundabout way that we've we've gotten into our our careers. And when I started after playing some sports in, in college and whatnot, I went down to San Diego State, and I was like in sales and in real estate for for a while. And then I, I kind of had that that bug to make a little bit more money, so I got into the financing world, and then. That thing for me always had a I had a, a burning desire to always be in sports when I grew up and and I never got into it oddly enough because I hated to fly it was weird I just I hated to fly and I hated travel and whatnot and then 
one of these days the the light went on and I woke up and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go get a master's. I'm going to get back into it and I'm going to start my broadcasting career. And I bring that up because Molly, you kind of had a not so similar route, but you took some different turns before you got to where you are at today. I mean, going to school, being a bartender, pre-med, and then all of a sudden you land in, in, a, in a book and you're writing a bestseller. What was that like for you or how in the world did you kind of make that transition from where academics were to the sports world? I think a lot, some people are fortunate enough to know what they want to do from the time they're like five years old. But yeah. most people, I think, aren't aren't really like that. And I I went to Stanford. I wanted to be a doctor, and I, I was pre-med. I'm, I'm, I have a degree in biology. And then by the time senior year rolled around, it was like, I could not take another organic chemistry class. <laughs> I didn't, I just didn't feel, it, I couldn't understand a lot of what was going on. And I would try and I would go to like the, the help classes for slow people. And I still wouldn't understand. And I'm thinking, do, am I, is this really, if this is really, really important for medicine, do I want to like not know how to do this? Because mm-hmm. my brain is not, does not have the aptitude for this. Um, and I just, I, it was one of those moments where you can't, you can sort of go to law school. You can go to law school if you don't know what else you want to do and, and use it in some kind of career, real sure. estate or, or business, politics, whatever. Nobody goes to med school to be like, well, maybe I'll use this in something else. Right. You have to know. And I just didn't know. And so I, um, dropped that class and then I sort of had a mini, uh, breakdown about what am I going to do with my life? And I thought, well, I've always enjoyed writing. I've never done it before. Besides writing papers, I have no idea if I'm any good at it. Maybe I'll just try that. And so I moved to New York. I had no experience. I'd never written for any paper, school paper. Hmm. Uh, I got my bartending degree from the National Bartending School uh, <laughs> in Redwood City. <laughs> and bartended, and I was like, um, people were like, oh, you've taken your Stanford degree to New York to bartend. It's like all my friends were going off to like, you know, Yale Law School or whatever. Right. Uh, Wall Street, and I was like, I'm going to the East Village. <laughs> I'm, live, I'm working at the Hells Angels uh, biker bar. But <laughs> I'm glad, I'm kind of in a way, it was like, I'm glad that I didn't ever um, go to journalism school or write for a school paper because I just would have been told how hard it was going to be right. and how I was going to die miserable and broken alone, you know, with my cats or whatever. So <laughs> I, I think that some, something can be said for, for getting life experience and falling into it that way and, and not being told over and over again that you're not going to be able to make it doing this. When, when you felt like you had that crisis, was there anybody in your inner circle, mom, dad, brother, sister, or just a best friend that said, you need to do this. Like you need to follow your path and your goals as opposed to going the, I don't want to say the main street route, but the (laughs) the way of society, you know, here in society, here in the United States, it's kind of like your degree, get married, have kids, work a nine to five and you're done. Well, it's this weird thing that I think my senior year, I had a great time in college my first three years. I mean, I I was having so much fun. I didn't want to go abroad. All my friends went and studied abroad. I was like, leave this place. You're crazy. (laughs) And then uh, my senior year, it was like I had like a midlife or, you know, I guess a quarter life crisis where I was just like every path I was on was wrong. I thought I was going to stay in the Bay Area. I was going to be a doctor or, or like a child psychiatrist or psychologist I was going to marry the person I was been da- had been dating through college. I was going to do X, Y, Z. And then it was like everything fell apart. And, but, and I was totally miserable and depressed, but it was like the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. I just, I needed a fresh start. I needed a, and, and moving to New York, I would 
recommend it to anyone who's like 21 years old, 22 years old, 25 years old. It's the best place on earth for that age. You just, you don't, it doesn't matter if you don't have any money. You, you stay in a room that's like the size of your bed and you just, you're out every night going to, sh- going to concerts, you know, going to plays, musicals, just being out, experiencing the city and the life. And it was just, it was, it brought me back to life and it gave me so much to write about. And I'm so glad everything went down the way it went down. I'm so glad that I was so depressed at 21 because none of this would have ever happened if I hadn't have been. And I think people get so um, upset when things that they think they want don't work out and they have to do a U-turn, but usually, or, you know, you, or go sideways. But I think that, that, that then you find your own, figuring out what you don't want is as important as figuring out what you do, you know? Amazing things way. happen in New York, right, Gazelle? Yeah, but I share a lot of, you know, I was laughing because a lot of what you said kind of, Came up, came up to me, you know, and, and when I was in college, and I kind of panicked and did the grad school thing. Yeah. While I am not in the field, you know, ostensibly that I went to grad school for, it put me on the path that definitely took me in a better direction than yeah. I probably would have been had I not done it. And it was like you said, it was just, it was a total panic move that okay, right. the job and the life that I had planned out is not going to work out. I need, I need something. And I, you know, I ended up doing it at UCLA, so it wasn't New York, but it was, yeah. it was, it was kind of the same, the same experience. And I think you said the same thing about when you went to grad school. Yeah, and I went to to Northeastern in Boston, so it's that New York, yeah, U- yeah. UCLA, and Los Angeles, and even Boston. It's like those are some some sports towns where you go on to some advanced things. It's it's a pretty fun market to be in. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. I just feel like at such an intense age, it was almost like. I felt older than than I do now. I felt yeah. like I had to know yeah. what I was doing, and like like you said, I had to lock down. Okay, what, what's my career going to be? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to settle down with? What am I? What are my goals? <laughs> like, and then like none of that. When all of that was sort of like in disarray, mm-hmm. I was just I felt like a total failure. Like right. I'm not, and, and I because all your friends are on this path, right. and you never, you know, it's like. You don't compare yourself to other people, but your right. friends are kind of like that's a sure. more intimate thing. Yeah. yeah, i i brought this I brought this up, and it's funny you bring it up now. But the reason why I was mentioning the the wedding at the beginning of the podcast was something you just brought up. Was everybody there was paired up or married? And so when they had the bouquet throwing, and then obviously the husband throwing the, the guard or whatnot, uh-huh. they asked all the single guys to come up. It was me and like two other guys that were <laughs> part of the wedding. That was it. And yeah. I remember this woman; she came up to me. And this woman dropped a hammer right on my head. She's like, at your age, with all your friends and what they're doing, you have your career, you have this, that, and the other. Why aren't you married? What's yeah. wrong with you? And I was my like, mom was at that wedding. I was, yeah, right. <laughs> this woman was uh, right around my age. So I was like, oh, wow, oh, man. So it was like a quick like. Maybe she's giving you a hint. Was she trying to compliment you, though? Was she trying to say like, oh, you have, because I get, I get, I Maybe. feel like, I feel like I get all that. It's like a very backhanded compliment, though, it is. right? Like when people say to me. Oh my gosh! Like you're this and that, and you're fun and this and that, and, and you and you like sports. Like, how are you single? Like mm-hmm. they're supposed to. It's supposed to be a compliment, but it's like, which is what weird. are you doing, loser? Yeah, seriously. Because <laughs> see, when, when I was in my twenties, I had this stigma about all of us, whether you're a guy or a girl. If you were thirty and you weren't married, there was something wrong with you. Yeah. When I got in my thirties, I was like, if you're not married and in your thirties, there's something really right with you because it means you don't need to settle or depend on anybody else for anything. You're kind of like running your route and not deviating from what somebody else wants you to do. Well, but at the same time, I mean, any one of us could have grown up next door to like the greatest person that ever That's lived, true. and 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 that could have been the right the right move you right. know and then we never would have even known what dating or anybody was like or heartbreak or any of that i mean yeah. 
I, I don't know. I'm really glad I didn't. I I haven't didn't hadn't married any of the guys I've dated because it would have ended in divorce. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But then it's also sort of like being for me. It was weird when I was reporting this book. I, I was just sort of after it got to a certain point. I think I was dating somebody. Not I mean not there's not seriously. But when when during the first mm, four chapters of the book, mm-hmm. and then it was like getting to crunch time, and I was like, I gotta get out of this because it's just taking up like energy and mental energy. And it's not the, this, this person's like not the love of my life, you know? And then I was like, sort of like I was training for the Olympics. I was like not dating at all. I was just like, you know, cause I, I didn't have time. And it was great. It was like, God, I've never been happier. I'm not like dealing with, I don't know. I think being in the wrong situation is way worse than being single. Work, working in sports. I don't know if you experienced this or you, or you, or you Molly, but, at times, because you're always out and about yeah. and you're doing the smiley face thing, and it's not always insincere. I mean, t- like I enjoy being at the ball field. I enjoy uh-huh. being at the court. I enjoy being here, you know, in the studio. Sometimes you kind of really do cherish those alone moments. Yeah. And, I mean, because, you know, you're at the ballpark every day. I can imagine, you know, sometimes oh, you just want to yeah. kick it up and sit on the couch. And the weird thing, I kind of knew that I'd hit a threshold when, like, when people you actually enjoy hanging out with call you and you're like, you know what? You kind of make up some story like I'd rather just kind of chill, be alone and watch the game a little bit and do, you know, do a little do do a little my thing. And once you kind of agree that it's okay every once in a while to do that, I I think you're you're better off than back when you're kind of out. You know, when I first moved to L.A., I remember you're like 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 your New York experience. You are out doing something every single night. Yeah. It's it's with the masses, and you you guys bring up some some fun things. I guess going back to the, the me time, Molly, you, you run into this experience now while you've been on the road with the club, and uh-huh. even back when you were in New York. How intimidating, or is it even intimidating anymore for you to be working in this profession and then dealing with some of the guys or some of the net, you know the the chatter that goes on, whether it's in a network or in a locker room. Or in a clubhouse, has that is it more numbing to you now, or are you used to it, or, or do you never get used to it? I used to be much more difficult when I was just having to walk into a clubhouse cold, um, not knowing how it was, if guys were in there were like total dogs, or if just or if there's going to be a guy who said something, or people just looking at you like you know you should be behind a glass case in a museum, <laughs> you know, like you're an exhibit. Like what is yeah. happening? Who is this? They're sizing me up. They're wondering. With, with the Dodgers, it was like, you know, I was there every day. So then you just, they don't, they know that I'm not, I wasn't about that. I wasn't, I, I've never dated an athlete. And then that was not going to start during the reporting of a book. Sure. And then you just get to know them. And you don't, I, I, I've, it's funny, I've said, um, there are some guys who uh, we don't exactly, we aren't exactly friends. We don't exactly see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. But I never once felt like I was being disrespected because I was a, a woman. And that's um, that's a really that's that was an amazing thing to look back on with those guys in, in this locker room, the reporting of this book. They were all, um, and I think part of it is just like they're all my age. Like my first year in the locker room was Matt Kemp's first year in the locker room, Andre Ethier's first, like all that whole crop of guys, James Loney, Russell Martin, those guys. And they just my our generation just like just not. It's just yeah. we don't we don't have that idea of like women's place is in the is in the kitchen away from <laughs> yeah, right. go make me a hot dog yeah, while I watch right. the game, you know and. Covering high school sports has kind of elucidated that to me in that all these guys, you know, I think a lot, I started like maybe five or six years ago, everybody who's come up now, they're all either like right out of college or late in college now, they all grew up having women cover them in high school. So it's like a, it's a normal yeah. thing, whether it be a print person or TV people, this next generation of people. And they're, you know, 
the social media has gotten a lot bigger. So not only are they being covered, they're interacting on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and whatnot. And it's become much different than it was. I mean, I'm sure you did too, watching the ESPN uh, 30 for 30 about the women reporters, let them wear towels. It was fascinating because I'd read a lot of those people growing up, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the ones that were in New York and even in L.A., and you hear the stories, but to kind of see them all condensed like that and just what an uphill battle it was once they got. And the funny thing is, it wasn't an uphill battle almost in the editorial rooms, although I know there, there are varying stories of that. It seemed like once they even got in, though, that wasn't the hard part. The hard part was having the credibility to walk into a locker room or walk in and to be taken seriously by a coach, which I, I think is one of the one of the advances that media can be really proud of to th- to this day from when it started. Yeah, I think but baseball it's it's going to be difficult. It's it's going to it's going to move slower than in other in other sports because it's a it's brutal to cover up to be a beat writer. It's a 162 game season. Talking about relationships, I actually don't know any baseball beat writers who are <laughs> who's, who are in solid. There a lot of them are married, but they never see their spouses. Like how can you be in in a fabulous situation when that happens it's hard and women if if a woman wants to have a child um she's not going to become a baseball beat writer there's no way the dads can go on the road and take off and mom a mom can't do that so there are going to be more and more females doing nba stuff nfl stuff it's not as it's not as crazy a lifestyle as baseball stuff what's next on your agenda as far as projects or or books or even anything else outside of that scope are you are you working on anything else at the moment yeah. or are you looking at something to do yeah so i write for um self magazine i do cover stories for them which is really cool for me because it's a women's magazine that's not about like how to trick a guy into liking you it's like, <laughs> it's like they they celebrate um strong women whether that means athletes um you know models who nowadays the models too are, are more built like athletes they all work out they're not the, anore- the anorexic things kind of, i mean they're skinny but right. they, but they're not like kate mott they're not waifs anymore right. they're kind of strong um and i actually interviewed someone yesterday who's i can't i can't say but it was phenomenal um so that'll be for that as well um and i still do freelance stuff i'm gonna um somebody asked one outlet asked because i left espn to 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 do the book and um i I don't know that i'm gonna go back but one of the another outlet asked me if i would cover the dodgers for the playoffs and i said you know what i'm I'm done. Like I've already written everything I needed to, to say yeah. about them, and I'm kind of like at this point where I needed to be to move on with my life in that sense. Uh, I, I need to figure out what the next book is about. My publisher approached me about something, um, asked me if I wanted to do another baseball book, and I'm not sure that I want to do what I can't say what it is, but I'm not sure that I want to do that. Write about that person, uh, but yeah, I don't always want to write about baseball. Um, but I don't know if I need to do one more baseball book and then branch out, or if I want to branch out. Immediately, I don't know. In the in the tradition of uh, Kershaw and Granky, can I throw your breaking ball? Yeah, Sarah Stalker. Stalker Sarah. How, how did how did that <laughs> how did that story come about? Oh my god! Where did that come? And it was funny because when the book came out, I'd obviously read your work on ESPN, uh-huh. but I didn't remember off the top of my head. And then I remembered, oh, she wrote the Stalker, Stalker Sarah, Sarah story. Yeah, that's so funny. No one, the whole that's amazing. I've I've done like. Geez, like 200 interviews about and this honestly, book, and nobody's ever asked me about Sarkis. I, I love saw it. that 
a friend put that up on Facebook, like, you know, uh-huh. when, whenever it came out. Uh-huh. Year, I mean, it was years ago, right? It was uh, like, 2013. Okay. Yeah. And I remember seeing that. And I'm like, wow. I mean, and, uh, and listen, Molly Knight is not an uncommon name. So I'm like, well, <laughs> maybe there are two writers. Yeah, you know, there her are. Name There's Molly another Knight. Molly Knight. She's in Baltimore. Sometimes I get her email. But you, she, did, you did write that story. I did write the Zucker Sarah story. Um, yeah. So the, the New York Times uh, editor-in-chief had read my the story I wrote on the McCourts. Um, the Dodgers, former Dodgers owners, years ago, and contacted me and said, "Hey, do you you want to ever want to write for us? Like, let me know. Just pitch us an idea." And I had been sort of intimidated in the grand scheme of the way that I operate. Like, oh yeah, sounds great, and then just been like, oh, I don't know, you know, I'm really scared and like, if I'm good enough or whatever it was. And I couple of I pitched a couple of ideas that didn't work out. Um, actually, I thought I was supposed to interview Adele at one point. Then she, yeah. Which would have been amazing, but then she had a vocal cord thing, and basically, like you know, no one's seen her since. <laughs> She's been mm-hmm. in the countryside, um, and so I had been following this girl, soccer Sarah. I just kept seeing photos of her with like famous people. I'm like, what is this? She she was, in- she's an Instagram phenomenon. Yeah, and right? just a, just she, she was a kid. She was 16, so it wasn't creepy, you know, because she's just like you can't get mad at a kid for wanting to take a photo with Justin Bieber or or Brad Pitt. But I was just fascinated by by um, that generation, the 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 Vine. Our YouTube, uh, Flickr, Twitter selfie generation, and I, she let me. I, I, I was, I, I would hang out with her on and off for like months. Um, and yeah, that's like how that came. About. Did you discover her on Instagram? Like that, or uh, on, they, Twitter. on Twitter, I discovered her on Twitter, and then um, we. It was great because that band One Direction was sort of becoming. It was like they had started to come out, and then they were becoming more and more popular. But they weren't the biggest band in the world like they are now, and. Harry Styles over the over the course of um, the year that I was following her on and off, um, it became clear that Harry Styles was going to become like a major thing, and he will be like the next Justin Timberlake. He'll have like an acting career mm-hmm. or whatever. And so we sort of were following him around, and he was the White Whale. And then it ended with one night, Man. I was like, I was like kind of looking out for her because she doesn't have a mom. Her mom left when she was five, and um, she was like seventeen, and we've been out like all night. And I was sort of like. Sarah, you know, let's get you something to eat. Like, let's go mm. here. I took her into this restaurant, Dantana's, and mm. then there was Harry Styles. So it was like my, oh, my like mo- mom, you know, <laughs> my my mom is taking over and being like, let's just get you some spaghetti. Like, let's get me, <laughs> let's get mama a glass of wine, and we'll regroup. And then he was sitting right there, and so that was like the end of our story. It was great. That's funny. Well, your career is continuing <laughs> to 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 shine itself, Molly. The author of the best team money can buy. I had a lot of fun today. Your tour, I know, will probably continue, but I'm sure someone else is going to drag you here into the studio yet again. This was fun. I like how it was like a, you know, we talked about a lot of things. Yeah, and you dressed down, which was great. I was a little <laughs> jealous. I mean, for those that are listening right now. I'm wearing it, shorts. It's probably about 95 degrees out here in Los Angeles. And 105. Yeah, see, it's ridiculous, right? San Fernando Valley. The cool thing is at least it'll be like in the 80s and 90s in October, November, maybe even December. So for people on the East Coast or Midwest. I saw, I'm the sorry. problem is that these places, people say, "Oh, it's not that hot." Like my apartment doesn't have air conditioning. <laughs> oh, it's not. It's, Does your yeah. car have air conditioning? Yes. Though. Okay. But it's not like in Phoenix or Vegas where they ha- like, or even St. Louis where a place has to have air conditioning. Right. Landlords would be thrown in jail if they didn't provide that. <laughs> so I have to go to my mom's tonight to to sleep because they can't sleep in the my poor dog. You know, it's the same thing. We'll have some spaghetti, have a glass yeah, of wine, exactly. decompress a little bit. So we'll have to have you back, and you should got to bring Stalker Sarah next time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, she yeah, she just launched some app that's like blowing up. It's how how to take photos with celebrity. I don't know. It's like for for fangirls. I 
I mean, it's it's cute, right? Like, again, this is something that we've talked about where it's not cool to be, like, a fan of things. And, yeah. like, she's just a fan. And it's, like, all positive and I don't know. She owns it. Yeah. And she's still young. She's 19 now. So it's, like, it's not, like, some old, some old middle-aged dude who's, like, I saw that, too. Some <laughs> creepy dudes trying to get autographs. And I'm, like, who wants to buy an autograph from a sketchy dude on eBay? That is too funny. Well, <laughs> I got to say my thank you, so we'll wrap things up here. John Ramos, our technical director, and Gavin Kinsel, our executive producer. Again, big thanks to Molly Knight, the author, the best-selling, the best team money can buy. Molly, where is it available if someone wants to purchase it? Online? Yeah, so if you're in L.A., um, all the Barnes & Nobles have them. Okay. And I, there's some signed copies, I think, still at the Grove. Online, Amazon is, is your best bet, though, otherwise, um, because it's inexpensive and easy. Audiobook? Yes, yeah. there's an audiobook. A, a nice lady did it. I don't. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard she's... Quite, it's quite funny to hear her curse um, <laughs> in man's vo- in man voice, I guess. Very nice. And that's on iTunes, I would imagine, Yeah, right? it's on yeah, iTunes, Audible, all the stuff. You can even buy it in CD form if that's your jam. What is a CD? I don't know. It's like I a know. tape cassette, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just I went through my, my slew of cassettes the other day. I, just, you know, I don't even have anything to play them on anymore. I know. No kidding, right? <laughs> well, for Molly Knight and Ghazal Hassan, I am David Gascon. Thank you very much for stopping on by again. The David Gascon Report from Fox Sports Radio's podcast from Behind the Glass. We'll see you again. This is Fox Sports Radio. 